It's in Christ. Once you heard the truth and believed it, you found yourselves home free, signed, sealed and delivered by the Holy Spirit. And at the center of all of this, Christ. The church you see is not peripheral to the world, but the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, but which he fills everything with his presence. How now shall we live? How now shall we live? What a fantastic question. If it's your first time here with us today, we're currently in the middle of exploring the book of Acts. By in the middle, I mean we're in the second week of a 12-week series. So we're not in the middle of anything at all. And you might be sitting there going, 12 weeks? I don't know if you've got my attention for the next 10 seconds, Michael. Next 12 weeks, that's a lot. Friends, over the next 12 weeks, we're going to jet ski across the surface of the book of Acts. No matter how long you spend, I reckon we could do three years in the, in the I said Acts, didn't I? Hey, yeah, fair, thanks, Al. Ephesians, we're in Ephesians right now. That's, they didn't get it wrong. Um, we'll do Acts another time. But if we were to spend the amount of time needed in the book of Ephesians, it'd take three years. So here's what I want. As we jet ski across the top of the surface, you should be in a small group scuba diving deeper. So, yeah, come on. I've come up with that analogy all on my own. That was in my head. Thank you. Ah, it's good energy today in Brisbane. Shorter sermon equals good energy. So keep it coming, guys. There's this sense where, where we need you to scuba dive deep because there's so much for us today. And as I step into Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, and you open up the Word of God to that, um, I want to let you know, we're not going to know everything about this text, but I hope we wet your taste buds enough to return back later tonight or this week. I remember when Sarah and I first found out that we were expecting our first child, Archer. Many of you know Archer. He's an 18-month-old ball of terror and beauty and fun and joy all wrapped up into one. There are two kinds of people that come to you when you find out you're pregnant. The first is the nice kind. And they're like, this is amazing. We're so happy for you. It's going to be the best thing ever. It's going to change your life. And we're like, yay. And then there's another kind of person, usually a 40-year-old dad with bags under his eyes and four screaming kids in tow. And he goes, grabs me by the jacket, looks me in the eye and goes, this is going to change your life. (laughs) And Sarah and I were determined, no, 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 our life isn't going to change. Our child will change around us. See, Sarah and I love going to the beach. In fact, when we go to the beach, um, I like to take books. I'm a bit of a nerd. Shout out to all the nerds out there. I won't get you to put up your hand. You and I both know you're not putting up your hand. You're a nerd. There's this sense where there, you, I would take four to five books to the beach, and I would love reading these books. And when I, we had a child, we, you know, I'd sit with the, my wife, and we'd suntan together. We'd laugh and joke. I'm like, our son is not going to change this. So when we first had our child, we took him to the beach, and I took four to five books. We took suntanning lotion, and we were so excited for a romantic getaway. The problem was no one told Archer about this plan. Whilst I was trying to read my books, Archer was discovering sand is one of the six food groups that you can eat. He was running into the ocean, totally oblivious to the fact that he couldn't swim. And I was stressed. I was like, this is horrible. I hate the beach. And then I started to resent my child, and it just went terrible from there. But then... Something changed. I decided, okay, what if I changed how I went to the beach? And so now, friends, I love the beach. We go all the time. 
I go three to four times a week. Someone said to me this morning, boy, I wish I had a job that I could go three to four times a week. I'm like, boy, I wish I had a Sunday week wake me up at 4 a.m. So I had to go to the beach just to entertain him. Then they were quiet for the rest of the service. That was a great moment. But then we go to the beach and it's amazing because we, we take a shovel and a bucket. I put him down. He does this thing where he just totally doesn't understand. He can't swim still. He's like, ah! runs into the water and like the water comes over his nose and he doesn't think that he needs to turn back he's like let's keep going so I don't let him like it's not a test I pull him back but he loves it but here's what's happened since that I have changed how I go to the beach I now love going to the beach now you meet some of you like where's this heading this isn't an Ephesians Michael the the reason why I say this is because some of us are doing faith doing church, doing following Jesus Christ, kind of like Michael originally going to the beach. See, we're clinging to an old way of life and we're tired, we're frustrated. We don't enjoy religion, church, small group, Bible reading. Like, man, this is just hard. I, think, I sometimes think my life was better before I even met Jesus. And what I've come to know is often that's because we cling to an old way of life And we just add God to it. As if Jesus said, I've come to make your life better. See, the Christian gospel doesn't say, I've come to make your life better, but I've come to make your life new. He's come to teach us a new way of life. And what I found in my world is when I cling to the old way of life that Jesus went to the cross to save me from, I get frustrated at what it means to follow Him. Then when I choose, hey God, you redefine what this looks like then the promise of Christ to fill me with life and life more abundant starts to become truer again. This is what Paul sees to answer in the book of Ephesians. How now shall we live? Paul answers. If the gospel of Jesus is true, how does it just not affect what like part of your life? How does it affect everything? This is what we're hoping to discover in the book of Ephesians, friends. And last week, uh, Pastor Scott Reilly from Cooling Gatta came and preached and he talked this beautiful message about this a revelation of God that God the Father adopts, God the Son redeems, and God the Holy Spirit seals. If you missed it, let me encourage you to go, go listen to it. It was, it was excellent. But today we, we walk into the second part of the book of Ephesians. The, uh, not the second part, the second part of the first chapter of the book of Ephesians where Paul builds on this idea of who God is. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he says this, For this reason, Paul says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love for all God's people, I've never stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, if you're a first time with us today, let me explain who Paul is. Paul's an apostle. He loved building up the church. And when he's actually writing this letter, he's in the middle of prison, awaiting his execution. Now, some of you are like, wow, that's really dark for a Sunday afternoon. I can't change the narrative. That's just where he was. And he's writing to a church in Ephesus that's facing persecution and oppression and like an overwhelming cultural tide against the Christian faith. And, and I just want you to think, if you were in prison in the middle of Rome and you got to write a letter to people you know, what would you say? Help! What does Paul say? Whenever I think of you, I thank God. Man, it's so lovely just thinking about you as I'm chained in prison in the middle of this house arrest situation waiting for my death. Oh, I feel with warm butterflies when I think of you. It's just something's happening. I love how Paul, even at the end of his life, thinks about others. 
See, in the narrative of Paul, you see someone who's not becoming more like Paul, clinging to an old way of life, he's becoming more like Christ. It's beautiful. And, and he, what he does, this is great, is he writes this letter to the Ephesian church and he tells them how in the middle of prison he's praying for them. I love it. He goes on and he says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, he's persistent in asking. Here's what, I, here's what I know about the team here at New Life Brisbane. Because I used to lead the team here at New Life Brisbane and I know they still do it. Every Monday morning, probably not tomorrow, public holiday, great day. Every Monday morning at 9am, they gather in this building and they pray for you. For half an hour, they rock up. Staff and volunteers together, they rock up and they pray for you. You should go ask Cal or Katie or one of the team and say, what do you pray for us? Because this is kind of what Paul is doing. He's praying for the church. And we get an insight. Paul's like, you want to know what I ask God for you? Let me tell you what I want for you to know about God. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Paul can ask for anything for the Ephesian church. Does he come before God and go, God, I really pray you would just heal them of their sickness? No. Does he come before God and say, God, I pray you just release their financial strain? Apparently not. Does he come before God and say, God, they're walking through time of trial and suffering and hardship right now. Probably people going, if God's real, why is there evil? Does he say, take them out of that? No, no, no. He doesn't ask for any of that. The chief thing Paul wants for the Ephesian church is that they would know God better. And there is a deep truth for us here today, friends, that two things Paul seems to suggest. That number one, you can know God. There are some of you here in this room who are here for the first time. Maybe you came to watch someone be baptized or maybe you just walked in off the street. You're like, they're making a lot of noise. Let's go see what it's about. And what I'd say to you today is that we are not people who know about God. This room is filled with people who claim to know God. See, I can know about Bruce. I can know that Bruce works at Uniting Care. I can know that he looks good in a suit. I can know that if you find Bruce on the weekend, he's either going to be gardening, fishing, or hanging out with his lovely wife, Kathy. I can know he's got four great sons. Uh, one of them is one of our worship leaders here and runs our creative team. I can know about Bruce, but I can find most of that from Facebook. Most of it. You should probably up your privacy. There's this sense, right, where, 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 where I can know about Bruce, but to know Bruce is when I actually engage with him. I can go, yeah, tell me about your sons. Tell me about your wife. Tell me about the gardening. No, don't tell me about the gardening. It's boring. Tell me about some other stuff in your life, right? I can know Bruce. Now, here's why, here's why I'm suggesting this. Some of us have confused knowing about God, like knowing his Facebook profile with knowing God. And we're bored with it because we're like, man, I, I can... I could tell you a whole bunch of stuff about God. God doesn't want you to know about Him. He wants you to know Him. You don't come to church so we can just fill our minds up with more facts. God says, oh, you can know me. And there are non-people who are yet to follow Christ in the room going, really? Is that true? Friends, I guarantee you it is. But there are some of you who are Christians who have become so obsessed with knowing about God, you've missed the ball game altogether. You've missed the fact that the greatest thing we can achieve in our life is to know God better. Now, that's not what our world says. Our world would suggest the greatest thing we can achieve with our life is to know ourselves. In fact, the mantra of the modern culture is know thyself. So we have 
Enneagrams. Hands up, who's done an Enneagram? Like three people, that's fine. Pretty much they tell you you're a number. I'm a three. What does that mean? No one knows. Then you can, then you, some people do know. People are like, wow, that's really sad, Michael. Good for you, I don't understand. Then some of you will have done Myers-Briggs. Hands up, you've done Myers-Briggs. They throw a bunch of letters at you. I'm an INTJ. Apparently that's like Emperor Palpatine out of Star Wars. What a win. <laughs> like, you know, and then like you go and you pick up, I don't know, Cleo, if that's still a magazine. And it's like, which Hollywood celebrity are you in this moment? And you follow all the questions. You're like, I'm Tom Hanks. And then you're like, what's emotional color are you? And I'm purple. And so you end up being a three INTJ Tom Hanks purple. You're like, I really know myself. The problem with it is, and I might be the, I might be the only one, but the more I get to know myself, the scareder I become. <laughs> I'm freaking weird. Some of you are knowing more about yourself and you're like, I am so broken. I'm going to hide it by doing another quiz about myself. Hopefully I'll come out as Harry Potter and not Emperor Palpatine this time. I've done it so many times. I'm INTJ all through and through. And, and the problem is this. You are broken. The better, the, the better part of your life isn't going to come by understanding yourself better. Is it good to know ourselves? 100%, especially if you're a leader, but it's not the chief end of all men. I believe the chief end that we should preoccupy ourselves with is to know God better. J.I. Packer, man who wrote Knowing God, right, says it like this. Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. Like this, this is so, so pivotal to, to our understanding of what, what we're talking about right now. J.I. Packer was not a guy with 10 rooms in his house and a Tesla in the driveway. He was a fairly humble man. He walked through suffering and pain like many of us do. And at the end of his life, he still said, the chief end of my life was to know God more. Why? Because he knew that as he knew God more, everything that he was walking through started to fit into understanding categories when he knew the one who was in control. Friends, do you know God? I believe that if we look at it as an equation, knowing God is greater than knowing thyself. This is why we're reading the Bible. This is why. Because the way we know God, if you're not new to church, we're reading through the Bible in a year as the church at the moment. We're in the, we're in, I've forgotten where we are. We're in the book of Deuteronomy right now. Totally there with us in that book at the moment. But you might have remembered that the book of Numbers, you thought it was gonna be better than Leviticus and it was filled with numbers. And you're like, that was rough. It was. But when you read books like Leviticus and you realize they're about God and not you being entertained, we recognize God's actually giving us indications of his character, his goodness, and trying to help us understand who he is. That's why we're reading the book of the Bible, the books in the Bible this year. This is so important to us as a family. A guy named A.W. Tozer says it like this. You know it's a good sermon when you've got Packer and Tozer right together. If you don't know either of these two people, that's your homework. Tozer says this. Once He says, I don't want the world to define God for me. I want the Holy Spirit to reveal God to me. Why does he say this? If we, if we do not make the preoccupation of our life knowing God, the world will define God for you. Does he not do this? Does the world not do this? When we don't know God deeper, all we have to do is troll through Facebook or Instagram or, or just hang out with friends. Like, well, God just seems really mean to me. And he's really distant. He's probably an old man up in the crowds, autocratic and like really just harsh. Doesn't want me to have any fun. But when we actually go, well, God, I don't want the world to teach me who you are. I want you. I don't even, 
You shouldn't even want Michael to teach you who God is. You should go on a journey of allowing the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures to reveal to you His nature and His goodness. Because here's the truth, friends. God is not playing hide and seek. God's not playing this cosmic game of hide and seek where you're like, Marco! And the Holy Spirit's like, Paulo. Oh, that was someone. I was like, is there someone outside? It's like, come to Jesus, friends. No, it's like, Marco, Paulo, right? That's not what God's doing. God's not trying to disguise himself and be like hidden and be like, oh, you got me. Now I'm going to go hide again. How do we know this? Because this is the Gospels. In the Gospels of Jesus Christ, what we find is God became man so he could reveal the fullness of himself to us. That we might know God. How do you know God, friends? Actually, if you really want to know what God is like, look at Christ. Jesus himself says, if you want to know the Father, know me. No, by knowing me, you will know the Father. God's not playing hide and seek, friends. He longs for you to meet Him. He longs for you to know Him. He longs to have an intimate relationship with every single one of us. And Paul knows this. And so I asked the question, what would your calendar, what would your schedule look like if your priority was knowing God? What would it look like to walk in every meeting and go, God, reveal your character to me right now? What would it look like to drive and be listening to 612 ABC and be like, God, reveal your character to me right now. Shameless fan of 612 ABC. Shameless plug. They should pay me because I'm telling more and more people about it. There's, you know, what would that look like? That's why Jesus says in the Gospels, he says, the good shepherd knows his sheep, but the sheep know the shepherd. He says in the end of days, there'll be two kinds of people. Not those who went to church and those who didn't. Not those who read the Bible and those who didn't. Not those who fit with morality and those who didn't. There'll be those who knew God and those who Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. This is central to our faith, not peripheral friends. So here's my question. Do you know God? Because there's no more important question that we could answer this afternoon. This is what Paul is praying for the people. This is what Paul is asking for them. And so he goes, here's, here's three things. Here's three things as we close this afternoon. Some of you like, heard that before. Here's three things that Paul wants them to know about God. He says this, he goes on in the next verse. He says, I pray that the hearts, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope. Everyone say hope. Great, first thing. Know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance, say inheritance, in His holy people and His incomparably, incomparably great power. Say power for us who believe. Friends, the three things that Paul is hoping that the Ephesian church know about God is His hope, is the inheritance and the power for those who believe. What is he talking about this? Well, first thing Paul says, he says, know the hope. Know the hope. Friends, what is hope to you? When I say the word hope, what does that mean? Because the God I know is a God of hope. I wonder if you know Him as that. When we use the word hope, we're a lot more modern and, and flippant with it in our vernacular. We don't use it as the ancient churches used it. We use hope instead of wishful thinking. Like, I hope the water's not too cold when I hop in it to be baptized tonight. That's like wishful thinking. Some of you sitting there like, I hope he's landing the plane and we're finishing the sermon really true. That's wishful thinking right now, right? Some of you, you rock up to work tomorrow or if, you know, maybe if you are going to work tomorrow, I hope that I'm going to get paid triple, even maybe quadruple time. They change the law overnight. That's hope. 
That's wishful thinking. This is not the same thing of what Paul is hoping. He's not saying, I want you to know the wishful thinking that you've been called to. What comfort is wishful thinking? What comfort is wishful thinking? As Paul in the middle of prison, he's not like, guys, cross your fingers. Hopefully it helps. No, hope for Paul was something far more concrete. In fact, if you go to the ancient church, when, when you saw many of their buildings, there were three main symbols that you would see everywhere. And one of those main symbols was the painting of an anchor. In fact, in most churches, you would see this painting of anchor. There'll be an anchor on the screen behind me in a second, in case you've never seen an anchor before in your life. And there would be these paintings of anchors everywhere. Now, I've never owned a boat, but I've been on a boat. And I would think that the purchasing of an anchor is one of the most crucial parts to owning a boat. Because I've been on a boat in the middle of a storm, when the only reason why we could go to sleep was because we knew the anchor was holding firm. See, when, when Paul says, know the hope, the best way that you could understand what is meant by hope, in fact, if we were to define hope today, I would define it like this. Hope is the certainty you have about the future that pulls you through the pain of the present. Not the wishful thinking. Hope is the certainty you have about the future that pulls you through the pain of the, of the present. This is what hope was for the early church. It was the anchor now, when you have an anchor, anchors are defined by something that's known as holding power. The bigger the anchor, the bigger the holding power. And when you're in a big boat, in a big storm, you don't want a small anchor with small holding power. You want something that can hold you firm. And this is why Paul wants them to know the hope that they're called to. What is the hope that we're called to? Friends, his name is Jesus. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this, for we have this hope which is an anchor for our souls. The Bible never says that you will have an easy life if you follow Jesus. It never promises that there won't be storms, but rather that the one who went through the storm of sin on your behalf will hold you firm in the storm. Faith is not about holding on to God, but rather the belief that God is holding on to us. And we all hope in something some of us are hoping in holidays. We're like, man, I really hope holidays come around soon. Wait till you have a kid. Changes holidays altogether. And the hope you had in holidays being refreshing and now spent trying to save your son from drowning at the beach. So your hope is in something that's weak. And you come back, you've all had them, right? That holiday that was meant to be refreshing and it wasn't. And we place our hope in holidays. We place our hope in riches and finances and romance and friends. And so these are not bad things, friends. But when they have the ultimate hope of our life, they have weak holding power for the storm. And the early church knew this. And so in the middle of a prison, on the way to his death, Paul writes this, know the hope you are called to. What is the hope we are called to, friends? That Jesus Christ was more than a man. He was the son of God and went to the cross for your sin, for my sin. He paid the price we should have paid after living the life that we could not live. And he died a death, but he rose again, pointing to the fact that death and suffering and pain is not the end of the story. And so he is our hope as the only thing that can bear the weight and carry you through the suffering and pain of this world. Friends, what are you hoping in? Because hope should be a dangerous thing. Because our hope is in Christ. We are dangerous to darkness because nothing in this world can take it away from you, friends. For our anchor has a strong holding power. It holds us in eternity. Well, how do you know this, Michael? 
What hope does Christ offer me for my future? So he dealt with the sins of my past. How do we know about the future? Well, friends, Paul is a beautiful arguer, Paul. He goes, know the hope you've been called to. Let me tell you about what part of this hope is. It's, it's got a glorious inheritance for you. Glorious is the inheritance that is promised to us in Christ Jesus. And, and, and this is pivotal. So the first thing was know the hope. The second thing Paul wants you to know today is know the glorious inheritance. What does this mean? It means, friends, that we need a strong, it'll be up on the screen in a second, the glorious, the inheritance. Yeah, I missed a word. It's meant to be glorious is the inheritance, but grammar Nazis, it's okay. Come down in front, we'll pray for you afterwards. Glorious the inheritance. What is this talking about? Christians need what I want to call a strong eschatology. What do I mean by a strong eschatology? Some of us have a really weak eschatology. Eschatology, it's a fun word to say. Say eschatology. Eschatology is the is our understanding of what's going to happen in the end of time. Where are we heading? Now, some of us have watched some really scary movies or some really nice movies, and we think that at the end of all things, a whole bunch of people will just like disappear and have their clothes left behind. We're like, no, that seems like a pretty cool idea. I'll just sign up for that. And we don't actually develop our eschatology. Some of us think that the world will end in a zombie apocalypse. That's horrible, and it's also not biblical eschatology. I don't think that's going to happen. What, 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 why is this important? Because we've talked about this before at Brisbane. What we believe about our future will define how we live in the present. And what Scott talked about last week, Christ has given us every spiritual blessing, which means this, that friends, in reality, you have an inheritance which is yours through the finished work of Jesus Christ, which makes you a spiritual billionaire, and many of us act like spiritually, like as if we're spiritually in poverty. There is more than you know that Christ has in store for you. In the, in the ancient days, if you were the eldest, then you inherited the fullness of the riches of whatever the Father left for you. But in the Christian faith, we're not known, Christ is not known as the first heir. We are known as co-heirs with Christ, which means what? Everything that God gives to Christ he wants to also give to us. And there are three things I want to talk about this afternoon that deepen this. The reason why this is important, the reason why this is important is because we need to start recognizing how often our faith is derailed by things which should not bother people that are rich in spiritual realities. Timothy Keller says it like this. Imagine that you're a billionaire. Like, just imagine if it is a billionaire. I know not many people are billionaires in the room. If you are a billionaire, love to chat with you after the service. There's, there, let's just say that, that you're a billionaire and you have three $10 bills and you catch a taxi, right? As a billionaire does. And you catch a taxi and at the end of the taxi ride, the taxi driver says, please give me $10. So you whip out your three $10 notes and you give him one. After he has left, you pull out your notes and you realize that you've only got one left. And you're shocked because you're like, oh no, I gave him two $10 notes, right? Now, if you're a billionaire... What's your next move? Are you going to be like, hey, get back here with my money? You're probably going to be like, ah, it's more where that came from. We're good. The reason why I say this is how many of us are walking through life and things happen to us. Someone hurts us. Someone devalues you. You walk through suffering or pain. And, and we act as if we're spiritually in poverty as if the God who carved the Grand Canyon and formed galaxies for a living doesn't speak worth and value and promise you a greater truth. We're like, how dare you post that about me? We're acting as if we've lost money when we've got so much more. 
Not physical riches, friends, but spiritual realities and identity that is waiting for us, that Christ has promised us, that God has promised us. We need a stronger eschatology. So when we walk through the world and we have a tough day at work, we're like, man, this isn't the end of my story. I have so much on offer in Christ Jesus. And I know what you're sitting there thinking, well, Michael, what do we have on offer? What is our inheritance? The first thing that we we get promised in Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, is that the meek will inherit the earth. That one day, friends, God will not only just restore hearts, but restore all things. And we're not going to heaven. I believe heaven is coming to us. Which means, you know how beautiful sunsets are? You have no idea about the earth we will get to share in for eternity that God will redeem and restore. Global warming will no longer be a thing. Climate change will be done. The world will be beautiful and we will get to inhabit it because that is our inheritance, friends. The Bible promises us that we will inherit a new body. Some of you, that's good news. I'm looking at you. No, I'm kidding. So I'm like, yeah, it sounds rich from you, dad bod. I'm like, cool, let's just chill. Let's all just roll that back. The Bible is very clear that one day when God redeems all things, that we will get a new body. Now, there are some of you who are non-Christians here and you're like, you get new bodies? That's bizarre. Friends, it might be, but I believe that the one who says it can be trusted, that Jesus is true to His Word, that one day when we pass from this world into what will be the coming kingdom, He will restore all things, which means, friends, that if you've experienced sickness in your body, you will one day, there will be no sickness in your body. I'm 32 and my back is given out. One day, I will no longer have to go to a physio to be able to bend over in Jesus' name. There will be new bodies. And so when I walk to the physio and I'm like, man, this sucks. I'm like, one day it will not suck anymore. And so every time that we see sickness come to our world, we're like, we're not gonna act spiritually poor. We know this is not the end of our story. The last thing we inherit, friends, is we inherit an eternal relationship with God the Father. Where we have intimacy with God. Where you don't only get to know Him. Some of you are like, Michael, I know you're saying gotta know God, but it's so hard. Yeah, it is. I gotta be honest. Sometimes following God and knowing Him deeply isn't always easy. But the Bible says that right now we look through a glass half dimly. But one day, the glass will be removed and we will stand in the physical presence of our King. And we will see what our heart has longed for. And we will be able to enjoy what some of us have only just tasted in worship, the bliss and pure joy of being in His presence for all of eternity. Friends, do you know the hope that you have? Do you know the inheritance that you have? And the last thing that Paul comes in and like with a, you know, a massive knockout fight, he, he says, and incomparably great is the power. Great is the power, Paul writes. Paul makes an argument that if you wanna know how you can trust the one who gives us hope, how do you know that you can trust the one who's giving you an inheritance? Look at the evidence of his power. What is the evidence of the power of God? Friends, the truth is, is that God did not just leave us, but this word power in Greek is actually the word dunamis. Everyone say dunamis. Came to church speaking English, left speaking ancient Greek. You're welcome. The word dunamis is actually the word where we get the word dynamite from. In Acts chapter one, verse eight, this idea of explosive power. Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says to his disciples, wait, and when the power from the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will go into my world, as into the world as my witnesses. There's an understanding, friends, that Christ hasn't left us alone, but He's given us a power to be His hands and feet in the world around us. As you know Him more, you're more aware of this power. You might be like, well, Michael, how do we know what this power looks like? I don't get it. Paul knows that you're about to ask that question. So let me tell you the last time this power was in operation. 
And he goes on and he says, if you flick to the next slide, an incomparably great power. So just think for a moment, the greatest, most powerful thing in your world. I know some of you thought of Calvin. That's fair, he's a pretty big guy. Some of you thought of your car. Some of you thought of, of a, a, a leader. Some of you thought of an atomic bomb. I don't know what the most powerful thing in your world is, but here's what, what Paul says. The power of God cannot be compared to anything. And here's what the power of God does. That power that is in Christians is the same as the mighty strength He exerted when He raised Christ Jesus from the dead. This is why the resurrection, friends, has to be more than a nice fairy tale for Christians. For me, it's a historical fact because I believe history proves it and I've experienced the reality of a resurrected King. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ points to us the truth that dead things don't come back to life on their own. There was a power at work there. And this is what God's promise is. That same power lives in Bruce and Amy. Some of you are like, well, it's nice to be Bruce. And Emma and Lisa and JJ. If you're a follower of Jesus, the same power that raised dead things back to life lives in us. That's not the only thing the power achieved. It also goes on to say that He seated Christ um, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not in this life, but also not in this present age, but also in the one to come. I was reading the news this morning. I was reading this headline which said, Australia should be very afraid of China. Scott Morrison should watch out. I'm like, oh no, what's Scott done to China? I started to worry about it. I'm like, is China, now this is fear mongering at its best. And, and obviously it's the news. But we do this often. We become afraid of things, of powers and of principalities and of governments in our world. But what we find is that the power, you've got to believe first in the resurrected King, the power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that seats Christ above every reigning authority. China can do what it wants. Scott Morrison can do what he wants. The American government, the French government, whichever government can do what they want because no one will be able to supersede the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. They're just waiting on realizing what we know, friends, that He's one. Now, more than that, there's another place where we find out that God says, you wanna know my power? Let me tell you where my power can be fully realized. It finishes in verse 22. And God places all things under Jesus' feet and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church. Calvin's not the head of the church. Amen? Amen. Michael's not the head of the church. Amen. A little quicker on that one. That's interesting. <laughs> Jesus is the head of the church. And here's what I wanna let you know. Some of you have been hurt by the church. Some of you have experienced evil or you've read of the church doing evil. Can I just tell you, the church was not operating under the authority of Jesus Christ when it commits sin. It stepped out in disobedience and operates in the flesh. It doesn't operate under the Lordship and the covenant of Jesus. Christ does not permit sin in His church. It's not His will, it's not His heart. Because here's what we should look at when we see the church. See, the church is Christ's body and in the church, the fullness of Him. The fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. Friends, you wanna know where the world should look at to know who Jesus is. You wanna know where the world should look at to experience the reality of Jesus, the church. The church should be the living representation of the character, nature, and goodness of Jesus. And when we aren't friends, we should repent, we should ask for forgiveness, and we should ask God to mold us into His body, His bride, that we would be beautiful for a world who needs to know the hope, know the inheritance, and know the power. The problem with this is, friends, is that we have power that's available for us to be the message of God in our world, but we operate power as if it's an optional thing one hour on a Sunday. 
It's like this lady who at the turn of the century in the middle of Ireland, an old lady was given power in her home. She, she had electricity and, uh, and they, they installed electricity in back in the early 1900s. And like, now you have power. She's like, oh, thank you. They're like, we'll come back in a month and check how your electricity usage has been. Month passed and they came back and they checked her power meter and barely moved. So they knock on the door and like, ah, oh, just checking. Like, have you been using the electricity? Like, you know, we hooked you up with electricity, right? And she says, oh, it's been lovely. When the sun goes down, I turn the lights on, I light my candles, and then I turn the lights off again. It's brilliant. And I go, you can keep the lights on. She's like, what? That's kind of how we live our faith. We just turn it on and turn it off. And it flipping confuses the world. Some of you are like, he said flipping. I, I don't think that's a swear word. But it does. Because we go to work and people know we're Christians and we're acting as if we're spiritually poor. Things happen to us and we're like, oh, this is just wrecking me. The early church was facing persecution. Paul's in the middle of prison and he's like, let me tell you how I'm praying for you. <laughs> know the hope, guys, it's amazing. We have an inheritance. I'm going to die, but it's not the end. And there's power that's made available to us. Let's take it seriously. And we live in the West. We drive cars. Life is not as hard as it probably could be for so many of us. And we're acting as if all we have is 10 bucks in the bank. And it all starts with this simple question. Do you know God? Because if you know God, these things are not truths far from you. They're close. Do you know God? Because here's what we do at church. You come to church and Michael preaches for half an hour and we know about God. Because a sermon is the same thing as me talking about Bruce for half an hour. I could do it. Talk about Bruce for half an hour. You wouldn't know him. You'd know about him. So what changes? That's why Paul prays at the start, I want the spirit of wisdom and revelation to open your eyes. See, I can tell you about Jesus, but it's only if you receive a revelation of him. I could explain power to you till my, the cows come home. doesn't matter unless you receive a revelation to him, from Him. I can tell you about hope. I can tell you about inheritance, but I could justify it. But the only thing that will change your relationship with God is if you're ready and willing and longing for a fresh revelation of who He is. Revelation is when the Holy Spirit takes something from our head and catalyzes it into our hearts as something we've experienced. So let me be clear. Do you know God? Because it's on offer today. Would you stand with me? Whether you're right up the back or down the front, I want to create a moment where um, I just ask, do you want a revelation of God? And some of you are like, oh, I hope there's some non-Christians in the room. This would be really helpful for them. I want to suggest this is for a lot of Christians in the room right now. Where your heart's grown cold. You're weary, you're tired. Christianity's not that much fun. I think what you need isn't more church. It's not more Bible. Small group could be helpful. What you need is a revelation. You need Jesus. Some of you say you don't know God and here's what I know. We don't find God, God finds us. He's the good shepherd, we're the sheep. So you just pray this simple prayer, good shepherd, come find me. 
And, and whenever I've asked God for a revelation of His character, here's three ways that I've seen it happen. It's happened in a moment where I'm like, oh my gosh, God, you're so good. I just experienced this tangible reality and it's phenomenal. But more often than not, it happens at a later time when I least expect it. I'm like, ah, oh, I didn't, God, I think you're revealing yourself to me in a beautiful way. It happens through scripture, through community. And sometimes it happens like a small seed where I ask God for a revelation of who He is and it's like He plants a small seed and I don't know, but over time it grows into a tree and I look back and I'm like, man, I know you more than I did. So friends, I'm gonna pray for a revelation for a lot of us today, but I'm not gonna pray for one or any of these experiences in particular because we don't tell God what to do. We just ask that He would work. So would you bow your heads with me? And I'm just gonna ask openly, there are some of you here today who don't know God and you need to. If that's you right now, God wants to give you a revelation of His grace and His goodness. He wants to lead you to repentance and forgiveness and teach you to follow Him. If that's you, I just want you to open your hands up in front of you right now. And here's the important uh, part as well, just as important as the first. Some of you here today, are people who call yourselves followers of God, but you don't know Him. He's like a Facebook friend who used to message sometimes. But now you, you just know where to find his page, you know about him, but you don't know him. And you feel it in your chest, you feel it right now. You're like, I don't know God. I know about him. And God's saying, no, 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 come know me. Come know me. Because knowledge of God will not save you. But knowing him as your Lord, your Saviour, your confidant, your friend, your King, the reigning one, that, that is where we, we, we experience the power of salvation. So I just wanna ask, if you're a Christian in this room right now, you're like, I need a fresh revelation of God. I need to know the hope. I need to know the inheritance. I need to know the power because I've forgotten all those things. I want you to open your hands in front of you right now. My hands are open. I'm praying this for me this afternoon. So God, we come before you as a people today. We need to know you. We need to know you. I thank you that you're not playing a game of cosmic hide and seek with us, but through your word, we can know you. We can talk with you and experience your love and your goodness. So Father, right now in Jesus' name, I pray for fresh revelation for everyone that is looking for it. Fresh revelation. Someone came today for a different reason. And just then I just sensed this like, I might have this wrong, but just like this question in your heart's like, man, this just seems, just seems too good to be true. I just don't think I can know God. I don't think He's real. I just, I just feel like God wants to let you know today. Not only does He have your number, He knows your name. You weren't here for why you thought you were here. You were here for Him because He is calling you unto Himself. And just ask Him, good shepherd, come find me. Someone else is here today and, and I just sense that you've heard Christians talk about power in the Holy Spirit. Um, and you're like, that seems nice for everyone else. It's just never been my thing. I just sense God saying, He wants to make it your thing. He wants to let you know the incomparably great power available for those who believe. 
He doesn't want you to miss out on the fullness of relationship with Him. If that's you today, just keep your hands open and say, Good Shepherd, come find me. Holy Spirit, come fill me. In this moment of revelation, God, I pray that you would not distract us, that maybe not be distracted from it. And even if we're not experiencing something now, Father, would you begin to grow something in our hearts that we would be a changed people for your glory. In Jesus' name. I just want you to stay in this moment as we sing this song, as we wrap the service and just declare the goodness of God together. Let's worship one last time.